Jesus loves the little children of the world. And this is an opportunity for us to share that love of his with them. And this is a great joy. And so we really do, do get to participate in the greatest gift. On your chairs, you see a sheet with red and green lists on them. This is what we're asking you to do. If you feel so compelled, then when you go out shopping or go out shopping specifically and pick up some items on the list, you don't have to get one of everything. You could get 10 of one thing. You could get 20 boxes of crayons. You could get 10 wow items. What we're trying to do is provide these boxes that will be filled with a really great wow Christmas item, an awesome doll or a stuffed animal or a deflated soccer ball with a pump that kids can blow up and have a really great time playing soccer with. Then some personal care items and some craft items, some school supplies. But we also want there to be little things like little toys or clothes and accessories. You don't have to get everything, but what we're going to do on November 21st, we're going to have another great serve. The Sunday right before Thanksgiving, rather than have our typical church service as we do, we'll come, we'll pray, we'll take communion, and then we'll scatter to serve. And some of our youngest, some of our elementary kids and some of our younger students and some of our older folks will help put these boxes together. We'll pack them out. We'll also have a team doing stuff at the baseball field and cleaning out some storage and going off to some different widows' homes to do some uh, yard work and different things. And then there's also going to be a lot of meal preparation because Sunday, November 21st, we're going to have our all-church Thanksgiving meal right here after the great serve. It's going to be a lot of fun. We need all hands on deck. It's going to be a terrific opportunity. Jesus loves the little children of the world, and one of the greatest things that we can do is make sure not only that we pack these boxes and we'll take a Polaroid picture of ourselves and we'll be able to follow the tracking number to see exactly where that box goes around the country so that we can pray for the exact child who receives it. But there are pastors and ministers in the countries that will receive these boxes, and they will do the work of discipleship. They will share the gospel with these children and give them an opportunity to truly receive the greatest gift of all time. That's what Jesus Christ has on offer for us. And Jesus Christ has always been interested in little children. In fact, one of my very favorite stories in all the Bible comes from Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, there's a synagogue ruler. And he's got a 12-year-old little girl, and she falls really, really ill. In fact, she's on the verge of death. And so this synagogue ruler hears that Jesus is around. And he goes out on the hunt, and he looks for Jesus, and he finds him, and he says, Jesus, if you come with me and place your hands on my daughter, you can make her well. And his faith was profound. Jesus said, I'll go with you. But as always happens, when Jesus goes anywhere, crowds gather. And there's such a huge crowd of people around Jesus that he doesn't get to the house as quickly as originally intended. And in fact... The synagogue's ruler, the synagogue ruler's daughter, dies. She dies. There's incredible wailing and weeping. And so the people from the house where this little girl was resting, hoping that Jesus would come and now has died, they go and they try to find the synagogue ruler. And when they do, they say to him, Stop bothering the teacher. He doesn't need to come anymore. The girl is dead. Just let the just let the teacher go. But Jesus, 
looks at the synagogue ruler, looks at the people and says, she's not dead. She's not dead. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And the people are incredulous. They, they can't believe that this is the case at all. And so Jesus finally makes his way to the house. And there, the people are wailing. They're gnashing their teeth. They're mourning deeply the loss of this girl. And Jesus says, no, no, don't worry. She's not dead. And everybody starts laughing at him. And they start joking around and laughing and making fun of Jesus. And you know what he does? He starts to go to the house and he says, everyone out. Everyone out, all you who are laughing and mocking, all you who are mourning and hurting, everyone out, except the synagogue ruler, his wife, even the disciples out of here, except three. He says, James, John, and Peter, come with me. And so Jesus takes James, John, and Peter, and the synagogue ruler's mom, or wife, and the mom of the daughter, and they go up to the room, and Jesus prays. And what Jesus does next is truly remarkable. In front of these five witnesses, Jesus reaches down to the girl who is clearly dead. And in Aramaic, the language that was spoken most regularly at the time, he calls out to her, grabs her hand, and says, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, rise. And immediately, she does. Without delay, she pops up. She sees Jesus holding his hand. She gets to her feet and starts walking around thoroughly alive again. Jesus loves the little children. This miraculous story, and in fact, every single miraculous story in all the New Testament that Jesus does, provides for us a snapshot a preview of coming attractions, because every time Jesus does a miracle, every time he'll raise a dead girl up and say, Talitha kum, and raise her to life, he's letting us know that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Jesus understands. Jesus knows that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. God started this world good, very good, perfect in fact. But it was our sinfulness that tarnished it and messed it up. And so every miracle that Jesus does is to let us know that he knows it shouldn't be this way. But don't worry, someday death will be undone. Don't worry, someday disease will no longer take you. Someday blindness will no longer prevent you from seeing. Someday you'll be reunited with all those who have died and gone before you. And that's what we get to see from Jesus every time he does a miracle. God's profound concern for the most needy among us, the helpless, the fatherless, the widow. This has always been Christ's concern. And our text today, as we continue our series on 1 Timothy chapter 5, highlights God's heart for the helpless. Those that truly need God's help the most, he's very concerned to take care of. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn them open to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We've been marching through this epistle. Today we finally find ourselves in chapter 5. We'll read the, verse, the first 16 verses of 1 Timothy 5 together. And so follow along in your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen behind me as we read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition 
to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. For this pleases God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Thus, 1 Timothy 5, 1-16. through 16. This text vexes some people because they don't see the same vigor and excitement that we see in other places in the book. Here's 16 chapters of widow stuff. And so there's not a clear declaration of the gospel like Paul presents in, a, in chapter 2 or in chapter 4. There's not a clear denunciation of those who are propagating false teaching and the command to oppose those who deal in false doctrine. Instead, we have a very practical concern here. And the principle is this. If a family can provide for an older widow, they should do so. If there is no family to provide for a widow, then such older widows may be supported by the church if they are godly women devoted to serving Christ. If, on the other hand, there is an older woman uh, who is a widow that lives for pleasure, then the church has no responsibility to her. But what about the younger widows? The younger widows were being duped by the same false teachers that Paul so vociferously disputes in chapter 4. The very same ones who forbid people to get married. And the same ones who command that certain people abstain from certain foods. There were younger widows who saw these false teachers as legitimate. And they said, you're not allowed to get remarried. And they pitched their pledge to Christ as an obligation to avoid being married. So then when they're younger and their desires to be wives and moms overtakes them, and then they do, they feel like they've broken their first pledge to God, even though that pledge had been twisted by false doctrine. Anytime false doctrine comes in and it takes the gospel and turns it just a little bit, that's enough to make monumental changes. If you have a line and then you divert that line by just one degree, 
Over time, the gap between what should be the straight and narrow and the path taken is very, very different. We see that in the cultural around us. We don't live in a God-fearing society anymore. In fact, people who are God-fearing are mocked and belittled. We live in a world where people are purposefully taught to sin, purposefully taught that sin is no longer sin, purposefully taught that up is down and right is wrong and boys are girls and different things are happening all over. Our society has abandoned the truth of the gospel, and yet it's the truth of the gospel that makes clear our obligations as those who are believers. And the gospel is clear and obvious in the book of 1 Timothy. In case you've forgotten, the gospel can be summed up like this. God is perfect, and God in his perfection created everything, and the very best thing he ever made was human beings. And God made us in his image, and therefore we are endowed with thought and creativity and choice. And God put us in a literal paradise. And he said, there's only one thing you need to do. Don't eat from that one tree. But Adam and Eve, the first humans, just like all the rest of us have done, sinned, rebelled against God and did what ought not to be done. And because of that sin, there was a separation between God and humankind. But God's love for us is so profound. It's just like Chris talked about today. The gospel has these two hinges. The first is that we are more sinful than we have ever dared to believe. We are incredibly sinful and vile. We have done things that are deserving of death, and we are more sinful than we dare to imagine. And yet the other hinge is equally as powerful. God's love and acceptance to and for us is more profound than we ever dared to hope. Both of these things are equally true. Left to our own devices, we are so sinful that we can never be right with God. But because of God's good love for us, he makes us right with him. And so the gospel is simple. God the Father sent God the Son to live as a human being and live a perfect and sinless life on earth. His name was Jesus and he died on the cross. He died on the cross even though he'd done nothing wrong, and we have done lots of things wrong. We deserve to be killed on a cross and separated from God, but Jesus, who had no sin, he instead took our place on the cross. He died for us so that we would not have to, and God the Spirit raised him from the dead, and as soon as we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, having died on the cross for our sins, we're justified. We're made right with God, and instead of being reckoned as a sinner lost, God now sees us as a saint saved. Now, yes, according to our own worth, we are sinners, but God loves us so much that he died for us, that we are no longer reckoned as sinful because we have placed our faith. We've believed in our heart the truth of the gospel, and now that changes everything. That changes everything. For now, we're told to get to it. We're told to start the lifelong process of sanctification, and that's just becoming more Christ-like. And so we spend our entire life, having been justified, seeking to grow more like Jesus, collaborating with the Holy Spirit, reading the Word of God, dealing with the people of God, so that we can do the job God assigned for us. And that job is to make disciples. And here at Glendale Christian Church, we're all about making disciples. That is our literal mission statement, to make disciples. And our vision statement is pretty short and clear, too. It's just six words long. Father willed, Christ compelled, Spirit led. 
for that's always what we want to be as we seek to make disciples. But as we're thinking through discipleship, we recognize that there are a number of things that God values. God values a number of things. And the two that we focus on in our text today are these. God values my generosity and God values my family. Now, of course, we at Glendale, we've talked through this, and we will, so we know that God values my knowledge, and God values my worship, and God values my service. But God values my generosity, and he values my family. But God also values my membership, and God values my invitation. But this text is a key demonstration of God valuing my generosity and God valuing my family. And in case you missed it, there are two critical verses that highlight these values that God has for discipleship. They're verse 4 and verse 8. Here they are. Here they are written out for you again. Believers should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and their grandparents for this is pleasing to God. God values my generosity and God values my family. This verse explains that to us very, very clearly. And those of us who place our faith in Jesus and are justified and call ourselves Christians, we are to put our religion into practice. You have to do something with it. Now, don't mishear me. You do not have to do something for God to love you. You do not have to do something to be right with God other than by faith accept his grace. But once you have, you have signed up to do something for him. Never to be saved, but because you have been saved from the penalty of your sin, you work for God and you do good things. And one of the things you do by putting your religion into practice is caring for your family. You got to take care of your family. God values your family. And so by caring for our own family, we repay our parents and our grandparents. And this is pleasing to God. Did you know that in the entire book of 1 Timothy, there are only two stated things that please God? The first was from chapter 2, verse 4, where we are admonished to pray for all believers. For all believers. For this pleases God. Evangelistic prayer pleases God. The other thing in the book of 1 Timothy that pleases God is when children and grandchildren take care of their grandparents. For in so doing, they're repaying them, and this pleases God. God values my family, and God values my generosity. But verse 8 is, is the verse that has a little bit of bite to it. Verse 4 has this positive. This is what we should do. Verse 8 explains what happens if you don't. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now that's, that's huge. Providing for your family, your relatives, includes foreseeing and planning for the needs of your dependents. And the Christian faith does indeed require that children honor their parents. Just as the Ten Commandments, the fifth one talks about children honor your mother and father, so too in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, you have a quote of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother, and then children are commanded to obey their parents. We as Christians have an obligation to honor our parents, and anyone who does not provide for their relatives has denied the faith. Now, this denial is not the same as the denial of a heretical apostate, somebody who has left the faith and said, I do not believe that it is true. This is the denial that Paul similarly refers to in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, there are some who claim to be Christian and yet deny the faith by their actions. 
There are two ways you can, you can deny the faith. One is to say, it is not true. I do not believe it. That is her heresy and apostasy. The other way is to say, I am a Christian. I do believe it. And then you just don't live it. That's denying the faith. That's denying the faith. Jesus, Jesus said in Luke 6, don't call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I say. You have to do what I say. We have to put it into practice. And so the failure for a Christian to take care of his own loved ones is more flagrant a fault than for a non-believer for this reason. We have the example of the compelling love of Christ that the world does not have. They don't understand Jesus, but we do. We have the Holy Spirit. We understand Jesus. And in John 13, when he said these words, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know my, you are my disciples if you love one another. This added incentive to obedience makes the failure of a Christian to take care of his own family a more obvious flaw than the failure for an unbeliever who does the same thing, neglecting his family. We have a higher standard. We are to love. And so... These verses make one thing very, very clear. Godly generosity and godly families are pillars of a godly church. We want to be a godly church. Glendale Christian Church wants to be so godly, we want to go out into the world and call people away from sinfulness and beckon them towards Christ. Follow us as we follow the example of Christ. And we want to introduce everyone we can to Lord Jesus. And if we want this godly church, this collection and assemblage of Christian men and women to be a strong one, godly generosity and godly families are a pillar of that. For there is no godly church without godly generosity, and there is no godly church without godly families. And yet, we live in a world where families are not told that they are important. We live in a world that instead discounts family. We live in a world where fathers are not present. Fatherlessness is the single greatest driver of crime in the entire United States of America. Fathers need to step up and be dads who are at home loving their kids, training them up, raising them in the Lord. But we also live in a world where women are taught that they're not supposed to enjoy the motherly things and to stay home. Now look, there are some moms that need to work. They have to. I understand it. There's like 5.4 inflation. I'm not going to get a 5.4 raise this year. I understand the need for people to work and get out there. And lots of moms have to do that. Single moms, even some moms and dads that are married together. But we live in a world where some people look down their nose at a mom who chooses to stay home and raise her children. Shame on anyone who would do such a thing. I love that my wife stays home with our children and homeschools them. And somebody said one time to me, well, aren't you worried that your kids might be weird if they're homeschooled? I said, better a weird kid in heaven than the normal kid on the path to hell. So I'm all right with it. But my kids are awesome. My kids are terrific. In fact, Allie, my youngest daughter, has such a heart for other children that her Mimi gave her some money and she went shopping. But you know what she bought? She bought a wow item for Operation Christmas Child. 
She bought a very awesome stuffed animal bunny that she's going to put in that box, and some little girl is going to open that box on Christmas Day or shortly thereafter, and she's going to be wowed by that present that my daughter picked out. Yeah, I'm good with my wife's influence being the primary thing in my daughter's lives. I praise God for her and for it. God has always had a heart for people in need. This isn't just something that is found merely in Timothy. In fact, the book of James, chapter 1, verse 27 says, God, our religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We live in a world that is bent on polluting us, and they will seek to destroy us. They will seek to indoctrinate our children. They will seek to pollute us in every way this society can. And we live in a world that does not care about orphans. It does not care about widows. The youngest and the oldest are the most at risk in this world. It's the church that is supposed to help and take care of them. That's what God our Father accepts as religion that's pure and faultless. Take care of them. Put your religion into practice. You believe the truth, now act out on the truth. But this is not just a New Testament concept. In the Old Testament, the idea has been there from the beginning. In fact, when the law was first being given in the book of Exodus 22, verse 22, it tells us, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. And then there's a whole long section about what happens should you do that. Not good. In the book of Psalm, verse, uh, in Psalm 68, verse 5, um, God is described this way. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. And so this passage on widows is nothing new. This is what the Bible is all about. But it does give us some very interesting insight. This passage has four widow categories listed out. The first category of widows are widows who are really in need. And they're described as those who have no family to take care of them, but put their hope in God and pray to God day and night for help. Such widows are to be cared for by the church. So there are lots of different kinds of widows. And the widows who are really in need are to be cared for by the church. Now, the requirements to be such a widow are that you got to be 60 or older and that you have to have been faithful to her husband. A widow must have been faithful to her husband. The Greek wording actually is a one-man woman. So this doesn't mean that you can't have been remarried. If you were faithful to your husband and he died, and then you got remarried, and you were faithful to him and then he died, you're a widow that still gets taken care of. It's having one feller at a time and running that commitment out all the way. That's what he's talking about here. And you also have to be well known for your good deeds. And here are the good deeds listed. Bringing up children. Did you know that in, in both verse 10 and verse 14 of 1 Timothy 5, they're uh, all included in the list of good deeds are bringing up children. Mom's job is to help bring the children up in a powerful, powerful way. And so we can't let society say, no, 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 it, it, takes, it takes a whole village. It takes a mom and dad. That's what God has designed it to be. And when there's a flaw in the system, we try to help out. But moms are supposed to raise their kids and dads are supposed to be there for them. That's how it goes. And that's one of the good deeds that's listed. You don't have to worry about all these crazy things. Be a godly mom. That's a good deed. And you know what else? Show hospitality. Wash the feet of the people of the Lord. That's what you can do. And help others who are in trouble. 
And so, if there is a godly older widow who has no one to take care of them, the church is to step up and take care of them. And that's not just financially, though it might include finances. That means we've got to care, we've got to bring communion, and we've got to go help mow the lawn, and we've got to be there spiritually and materially for these widows who have no one. But there are other kinds of widows. There are some widows with children or grandchildren. And these are to be cared for by her family. Families should put their religion into practice by caring for her, for this is pleasing to God. So, if you are a widow and you have children or grandchildren, it's their job to take care of you since you took care of them. And if you are a child or a grandchild of a widow or of elderly parents, it is your job to take care of them. That's what you are called to do. And so, if there's a widow and she has family around, that family is supposed to take care of her so that the church can take care of those widows who are really in need. So just because you're a widow doesn't mean the church is going to meet all the needs because you've got family that are supposed to do it first. But there's another category of widows, and these are the younger widows. What about the younger widows? Well, they're not to be put on such a list, but they are counseled to remarry, to have children to manage their homes in order to avoid being idle busybodies saying things they shouldn't. Now, this is always a problem. If there's a younger woman who becomes a widow, this younger woman can decide that she will remain devoted just to Christ and not marry physically. That is totally fine. That is totally fine. But what happens so often, the way that God has wired most of us, is that our desire for the family relationship is so strong that Paul encourages young widows to just get remarried. Just lean into that. Have a godly marriage and raise godly children so that you don't give the devil any foothold in your life. Don't go around from home to home and say things you shouldn't. Instead, let your pledge to Christ be true. And there is no shame in getting remarried for the commitment you made was till death do us part. If you're a widow, your husband has parted you by death and it is allowed, you are allowed to get remarried. That is okay. That is good, in fact, if you are a younger widow. But there's another type of widow out there. And this is the widow who lives for pleasure. This is the widow who doesn't have concern for others but has concern for a luxurious lifestyle and doesn't want to show any concern for other people. And this widow is dead, even though she lives. This kind of widow is just like all of the people out there who don't accept the gospel. Oh, they might be living, but they're really dead. They're dead spiritually. They're dead on the inside. And the widow who has more concern for self and luxury than for others is a widow who's considered one living for pleasure. Now, this is an individual that the church has no obligation to take care of. But there are some individuals in the church who are already taking care of widows. And so here's how church goes. There is the church collective and there are church individuals. So the church collective has always had a heart for widows. You remember back in Acts chapter 6 when the apostles were doing so much of the teaching and different things, but there was a dispute that arose among the Hellenistic uh, uh, widows. And so there was a need for the apostles to say, we got to get some deacons going. The first job of deacons was to bring food to widows. That's why they were invented. 
The church collective has always had a heart for widows, but there are also church individuals who have hearts for widows. And if you find yourself a woman or a person that is dealing with widows and taking care of them, good. You should continue to help them as an individual so that the church collective can help those widows that are really in need. Don't abandon taking care of that widow because then she'll get bumped over to the widow in really, really in need category. When there are some widows who are really in need that individuals have a relationship with and they can take care of her, they should do so. And there are women like that in this congregation. Thank you. That's so good. In the same way that the church collective is supposed to take care of widows, like that's even how the deacons came about. The church has always had a long history of women who were taking care of widows. In fact, my favorite example is from Acts chapter 9 and a beautiful-hearted woman named Tabitha. Now, Tabitha was this incredible disciple who lived in Joppa, in the town of Joppa. There she was, and Tabitha was so sweet-hearted. She took care of all kinds of widows, and there were many. And one of the ways that Tabitha took care of these widows was by putting her domestic skills to use. She knew what it was to sew and to make clothing and robes, and she would literally help clothe the widows who had no one to take care of them. And so she would get these wonderful robes and pieces of clothing together, and she was a woman clearly of means. She was clearly well-to-do. And this woman, Tabitha, was so concerned for these widows that she would take care of them and help them. Well, Acts chapter 9 tells the story that even though she went around, it describes her as always doing good and helping the poor. Imagine being mentioned in the Bible just in one paragraph, and the number one descriptor of you was always doing good and helping the poor. That's all right. She was pretty great. She was taking care of people from the beginning. But you know what? She fell ill. She got really, really sick, and it was looking bad, and then she died. She died, and so they took her up to the upper room of her house, and her body was washed and placed in the upstairs room. But the disciples who were in Lydda, or who were in Joppa, rather, they heard that Lydda was close, and they heard that the apostle Peter was in Lydda. And so some of the disciples ran to the next town over, and they said, Peter, 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 we know you're fast. You beat John all the way to the tomb. Come, come, come on. We need you to hustle all the way over to, to Joppa. We need your help. And so Peter said, all right, let's go. And so Peter goes with them having been asked to come at once. And when he arrives to the town of Joppa, he finds Tabitha's beautiful home. And he sees that there are all kinds of women around there who are weeping and crying. And when they arrive at the house, they take him up to the upper room where Tabitha's dead body has been washed and laid out. And there are people praying and crying. And you know the group that was crying and praying the loudest? The widows. And you know what they were doing? They were carrying the robes and clothes that Tabitha had sewn for them. And the tears were streaming down their face, dropping on to the clothes that Tabitha had made. And they said, Peter, she was the one who took care of us. And so Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, remembered what Jesus did way back in Mark chapter 5. The little girl had died. And so Jesus kicked everyone out except for James, John, and Peter. And so Peter remembered exactly what Jesus did. He prayed and he got down and he said, Talitha kum! And so Peter, filled with the Spirit, remembering what his Lord had done, 
kicks everyone out. He says, go, 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 go. Send everyone out of the house. And he gets down on his knees and he starts praying. And then turning to the dead woman, he says just what Jesus said, except he changed one letter. Taking her by the hand, he looks at her and boldly says, Tabitha Coom! Tabitha, I say to you, rise! Just the same way Jesus said, Talitha Coom! Little girl, I say to you, rise. Now, Peter, he just changes one single letter. Tabitha Coom! Tabitha, I say to you, rise! And she is raised from the dead. Immediately, she pops up to her feet. And she's thoroughly alive again. Just as Jesus raised the little girl, so Peter raises this saint who takes care of the widows. And they start clapping and applauding and cheering and praising God. And because this woman who, take care, who took care of them so powerfully, so that the church collective would not have to be burdened with these widows, they were already burdened with other widows that they were taking care of. Tabitha took care of these widows. God, through Peter, raised her from the dead so she could continue to be an individual with widows in her care that would continue to care for them. And news of this spread far and it spread wide. And the Bible describes at the end of Acts chapter 9 that this became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. Snapshot of things to come. It's not right that Tabitha has died. It's not right that your husbands have died. It's not right that no one is there to take care of you. And through the power of God, we get a snapshot that God understands it's not the way it's supposed to be. And just as Jesus, through his miracles, showed us that he understood, so the Holy Spirit miraculously worked through Peter and letting them know, those dear sweet widows, that the church understands the church has a job to do. And so, here's how I describe the job this week. Here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to read 1 Timothy chapter 5, the whole chapter, every single day this week. Go ahead and read 1 Timothy 5 every day this week. And then I want you to contemplate these two statements, these eight words. I want you to think deeply, ruminate, chew, study, marinate. Think on these. God values my generosity. God values my family. I want you to think about these two statements so deeply all week long. I want you to think, God values my generosity. God values my family. These eight words, I want them to be running through your mind all week long. I want you to meditate on them. I want you to contemplate them. I want you to think them through over and over and over again. And then I want you to pray. And when you pray, I want you to pray this way. I want you to pray for opportunities to exercise these values. I don't want you to pray that God would make you godly. I want you to pray that God would allow you to have an opportunity to exercise these values, which will grow you in godliness. And I promise you this. If you pray, God, please give me the opportunity to exercise generosity and to exercise valuing my family, it will come. And lastly, I want you to seize the opportunities when they arise. And I want you to put your religion into practice. Those of you who are believers, I want you to put your religion into practice. And there are a couple of ways you can do that. First of all, next week, God values my family. So guess what we're going to do next week? We're going to let all the kids in here. 
No kids programming during 8.30 or during 10.45 service. All children, except babies, will have a nursery available. All children, and then they can come anyway. But all children are going to be in service with us. Family Sunday. So there's going to be more people and there's going to be more kids. And you might hear more crinkling around you. And you might hear a little bit more cooing or talking. And you know what? It'll be all right. I want you to just deal with it. It'll be okay. Because you know what those kids are going to see? They're going to see how we praise the Lord, and they're going to see how we pray, and they're going to see how we do communion, and they're going to learn by our example what church is like. That's happening next week. During the Sunday school hour, during the 9.45 time, there will still be kids programming because you don't need your kids going with you to Bible study. You still want that time, and so we'll have kid-appropriate-aged Bible studies going on. But during the early and second service, no kid stuff, all kids in the room. And I want you to love it because God values my family. So my family's going to be here. Now, they might be drawing the notebooks, and they might be paying attention, and they might even be sitting on different sides of the room, but they're going to be in here. And I want your family to be in here too. It's going to be great. There's another opportunity you could seize. You could get one of these sheets or you could go out to the lobby and you could look at the Operation Christmas Child table and you could see about the size of the box that we're going to be packing and you could realize, oh, I can't get big stuff. If I get a soccer ball, I really got to make sure it's deflated and have a pump to go in it. Ooh, if I get a doll, I got to make sure it can get smished down so I can put as much stuff in this box as possible so that these kids can get a present and can get the gospel and have some fun. And you can plan your shopping trips between now and November 14th when we collect all the goods because on November 21st, during Great Serve, we're going to be putting these boxes together, getting ready for an awesome Thanksgiving dinner. We're going to be helping out at the baseball field. We're going to be getting ready for Christmas. All kinds of stuff. God values my generosity. Oh, God values my generosity. You might go shopping and buy a bag of candy. If you don't like kids and you don't have family of your own, that's all right. You can come and you can watch everybody else's kids and you can say, you know, God set it up so that I didn't have kids and that's really great. But he still loves them, so what I'm going to do is go buy him some candy. We need some candy. You might not want to come next week to the fall festival and that's okay. You might not want to get dressed up or you might not want to have a trunk and hand out candy to kids for a couple hours. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'll be Clark Kent turning into Superman, legitimate, awesome, old school Superman. Don't worry. It's going to be great. And so what I want you to do is be willing to come out because maybe you don't want to do that, but maybe you know how to deal with fire. We're going to have a fire pit for s'mores. We need responsible adults to deal with those little sticks so that the kids can burn their malo and put it together. We need your help. Little kids sometimes get in trouble at the bouncy house because they start bouncing into each other too much. We need somebody who can say, hey, knock it off. Let that little kid go through the obstacle course. We just need people to help. All hands on deck, it's going to be great. Unless you don't want to come on deck. And then just give us some candy. God values your generosity. I'll take either one. So next week, fall festival. A couple weeks after that, great serve. Between now and then, if you pray, I promise you this, the Holy Spirit will remind you of some opportunities to exercise these values. Let's go to the Lord.